This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, ParCast listeners. It's Vanessa with some incredible news. You can purchase your copy of our book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, available now at parcast.com slash cults. Cults is an expanded look at the people who led and followed the most radical groups in history with an unflinching exploration into what happens when the most vulnerable recesses of the mind are twisted into the lowest forms of malevolence. Details not featured on our podcasts. We're so proud to bring you this fantastic compilation of stories, and we're forever grateful for your support. Without you, none of this would be possible. So thank you. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults to order today. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of sex, pornography, graphic violence, and murder. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. In October of 1999, a crisp autumn air blanketed the town of Wellesley, Massachusetts. Dr. Dirk Greinader walked the downtown streets aching with frustration. His wife, May, laid in bed at home suffering from back pain. She was always suffering from back pain. Dirk could hardly stand it. Not only was his own wife unable to be intimate with him, but her existence made it impossible for him to be with anyone else either. Recently, both a sex worker he'd once hired and two people he'd met on an online dating site had ghosted him. Dirk wondered if his medical prestige and his status as a married man had scared his prospects off, sending his sexual fantasies down the drain. Walking past the local hardware store, Dirk did a double take. He circled back and peered into the storefront window. Then he went in. He moseyed up and down the aisles until something caught his eye. A large blue drilling hammer. Without a second thought, Dirk brought the hammer to the checkout counter, whipped out his wallet, and paid in cash. He walked home in a hurry, plotting it all out in his head. If he could conceal the hammer, all he'd have to do was sneak up from behind and swing. He could use a knife to cut her clothing and make it look like she'd been assaulted. Authorities would surely place the blame on a serial killer, given the recent attacks in the area. And when his wife was dead... The doctor would once again be an eligible bachelor. 
This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm delighted to share some medical insight with Alistair into the concluding episode of Dr. Dirk Greiniter, whose routine stroll with his wife on one particular day was no walk in the park. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our final episode on Dirk Greiniter, a renowned allergist who created a secret life and ruined his public one. Last week, we followed Dirk as he crumbled under the pressure of the American dream. His marriage suffered until Dirk's wife, May, was found gruesomely murdered. Today, we'll see Dirk fight for his innocence, even while his darkest secrets are exposed. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. The Halloween scares began sooner than expected on October 31st, 1999. At Morse's Pond near Boston, Massachusetts, homicide detective Marty Foley assessed the scene of a 58-year-old May Grinader's murder. May's husband, Dr. Dirk Grinader, stood to the side. Dirk had just told officers how he tried to locate his wife's pulse after finding her mauled on the trail. But the doctor's clean hands told a different story. As he spoke, Dirk heaved sobbing breaths without shedding a tear, which the detective also found odd. For the moment, Foley tuned out Dirk's display, as well as the rest of the commotion around him, and tried to piece together the details of May's death. Her body lay half off the path that circled Morse's pond. Drag marks in the dirt indicated that someone had moved her closer to the woods before leaving her in that position. Blood caked and pooled around her head, and a neck wound had nearly decapitated her. Foley couldn't ignore the similarities between this and two other recent murders in the Boston suburbs. Those victims were found in similar positions, sustained similar wounds, and were killed in public parks. Many officers already assumed they were dealing with the work of a serial killer. Willing to entertain this theory, Foley seemingly set aside his suspicions of Dirk Reinader at first. He even noted how similar May's death looked to the others. The detective's winning strategy would be to let his questions do the talking. This approach worked especially well with Dirk, who spilled his story to anyone who would listen. Dirk told the detective that he and May were walking down the wooded trail when her chronic back pain flared up. She'd left her back brace in the car, so she told Dirk to go on while she laid down for a bit. He agreed, then set off with their German shepherd, Zephyr. 
He and Zephyr moseyed down to the pond and walked along for a bit before circling back to where they'd left May and stumbling upon her slain body. Detective Foley tried to reserve judgment, but the idea that Dirk would leave his ailing wife alone on a trail made him even more suspicious. We already know that May had chronic severe back pain and that she would often lay down and wait for it to pass. But it seems odd that she would have asked her husband to leave her to rest in the dirt. For one, lying on or near a heavily traversed trail increased May's risk for further injury as she was likely less visible to other park patrons. Someone may have tripped over or fallen on her, or she might have had to suddenly get up or move to dodge a hiker, cyclist, or someone's pet. Any of these scenarios could have easily exacerbated her back issues, as any abrupt movements or twists to an already compromised spine can have serious consequences. I find it most odd that Dirk would go on without her. One would think that his background in medicine would have chimed in and he'd recognize the risks. As he asked more questions, Foley became more unsure of whether he was looking at a husband suffering tremendous regret or putting on a show. He gently tried to pry more out of Dirk. He asked the doctor if, when May first expressed pain, he'd suggested they go home. Dirk said no. Then Foley asked Dirk if he'd washed his hands after checking May's bleeding neck for a pulse. No. Suddenly, Dirk became visibly agitated and said he needed to call his children right away. Foley thought Dirk might be trying to change the subject, so he offered to drive him to the police station to make his calls. Plus, they needed to collect some forensic evidence. But the doctor wasn't under arrest, of course. Dirk calmed himself and agreed. The pair rode off in Detective Foley's cruiser, and the officers who remained at the scene set out to gather witness statements. One local resident was out walking his dog when he'd heard a high-pitched, unhuman-like scream around 8.30 that morning, the presumed time of the murder. He thought it was just children playing and thought nothing of it. They also interviewed a man named Bill, who'd seen Dirk emerge from the woods around that same time. According to Bill, the doctor walked briskly toward the pond, disappeared from view, then returned moments later. Dirk approached Bill to ask to borrow his cell phone, but Bill told him he didn't have one, so Dirk walked off. A third witness claimed that Dirk also asked him for a cell phone. Only then, approximately 20 minutes after the murder, did Dirk finally go to his van and call the police. Officers thanked their witnesses, then proceeded to gather forensic evidence. With so much foot traffic in the park, they knew it might take some time. Meanwhile, Dirk and Detective Foley arrived at the police station along with another detective, Jill McDermott. The detectives led Dirk to their office and let him use the phone. To placate him, they gave Dirk his privacy, but they kept an eye on him through the office window. McDermott watched as Dirk picked up the phone, dialed a number, and spoke with someone for a short time. He hung up, then made another brief call. Dirk came out of the office and said he'd called his youngest daughter, Britt, who lived nearby. But he couldn't share the horrible news over the phone, so instead, he only told her that something bad had happened and to come to the police station. McDermott said nothing. Then, 
Dirk sheepishly admitted that he'd also called his lawyer, who was on his way to the station. And apparently, the lawyer advised Dirk not to say anything more to police. The detectives weren't surprised to hear this, but they were surprised by what Dirk admitted next, that he'd actually called his lawyer first. And Dirk's unsolicited revelations kept coming. Around noon, Dirk's lawyer arrived and met with detectives, leaving his client to sit in the detective office under the supervision of Jill McDermott. Dirk and McDermott sat in silence for some time. Then, out of nowhere, Dirk blurted out that May had given him a back rub that morning so they might find his DNA under her fingernails. The detective was taken aback. Dirk searched her eyes for a response, but the awkward moment didn't last long. Britt Grinader burst into the room. She'd come to the station after her dad called and an officer had informed Britt of her mother's passing. Reeling with grief, she wanted answers. According to the book, A Murder in Wellesley by Tom Farmer and Detective Foley himself, Britt asked Dirk, what is going on? Did someone kill her? What happened between you and mom today? Britt's voice trailed off and she fell into her father's arms. After giving them some time, Officers told Dirk they needed him to submit his blood-soaked clothing for analysis. Dirk undressed in front of Detective Foley. When the doctor removed his windbreaker, the officer noticed rows of bright red scratches along his neck and chest. He asked Dirk where he'd gotten these scratches, and Dirk said he'd been wrestling with his dog. Scratches are a common and relatively minor injury, but they're not one-size-fits-all. It's definitely possible that scratches from a large dog could look similar to self-defense marks. However, there could have been indications that the marks on Dirk weren't made by a human, and closer inspection probably would have revealed this. For one, the pads of a dog's paw don't allow for separation between the digits, which means that any series of scratch marks would have likely been closer together than any left by human fingers. Despite differences in breeds and grooming techniques, dog scratches can often seem finer and more precise than those left by more rounded human nail tips. With this, dog scratches often appear to begin with slight puncture marks. Really though, detectives should have been more concerned with the freshness of the wounds. Because the marks on Dirk's body looked raw and bright red, it would suggest that they were inflicted recently and with force. This was definitely incriminating. Looking at the marks, Foley realized there was more to Dirk than the father of three let on. The detective needed to learn more but he couldn't tip his hand. So he told Dirk he wanted to conduct a walkthrough of his home. Nothing serious. He wouldn't even obtain a warrant if Dirk said it was all right. Just a quick search to see what he could learn about May. Dirk smiled through his panic. He had to agree. Foley collected his clothing. Then the two men, Dirk's lawyer, Britt, and Detective McDermott made their way to the Grinader home. The walkthrough was quick. Officers left without taking any evidence with them, and Dirk felt they all parted on friendly terms. But that didn't turn his thoughts away from the ongoing search of Morse's pond. And Dirk was right to be worried. 
Unbeknownst to him, the search team had called in chemists and a search dog. As it turns out, the dog was a very good boy. He dragged his handler into the woods near the pond's shore, the very place witnesses encountered Dirk seeking help. The dog stopped at a storm drain. A group of officers removed the lid and looked inside. Lying at the bottom was a bright blue hammer. At least, it was blue underneath the layer of blood. Coming up, detectives find more clues around Morse's pond. Hi, listeners, it's Vanessa. I'm so excited to tell you that our first book is on sale now. This is such a big moment for the whole ParCast family, and we can't wait for you to read it. It's called Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. And you can purchase it today by visiting parcast.com slash cults. This is a passion project years in the making and only made possible by you. With your support, we've been able to get back to our storytelling roots. This time with a wealth of research and insights under our belt and intimate details not covered on our podcast before. Shame, exploitation, power. Cults unfolds the many motives behind groups like Nexium, Heaven's Gate, The People's Temple, and more, revealing eye-opening details which will surprise even the most devoted true crime fan. Visit parcast.com cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. That's parcast.com cults. And on behalf of everyone here at ParCast, thank you for joining us on this journey. We hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Late on Halloween night, 1999, it seems like Dr. Dirk Greinader was cleared of suspicion in the murder of his wife, May. But as officers concluded a brief, fruitless walkthrough of his home, discoveries at Morse's pond seemed to incriminate the 59-year-old doctor. Searching a storm drain at the crime scene, detectives found a blue hammer covered in blood. They looked further and spotted a single, right-handed brown work glove and a four-inch-long pocket knife. Upon further inspection, officers noted that the knife and hammer looked brand new, aside from the layer of blood that coated them both. These weapons were consistent with May's injuries. It appeared she'd been struck in the back of the head, then stabbed. As for the gloves, detectives recalled how clean Dirk Grinader's hands had been. Later, Police found the left-hand glove just steps away from where Dirk parked his van that morning. With this, the serial killer theory was dispelled. Detective Foley was notified and the evidence was sent out for analysis. Meanwhile, 
Dirk Greinader had been running his own analysis. After saying goodnight to the detectives, the doctor and his daughter Britt sat down to make some phone calls. They called May's sister Ilse, who'd offered to pay for May's facelift when Dirk wouldn't, and Ilse's daughter Belinda. They broke the news to them, but rather than share in their grief, the Grinders promptly told them they anticipated a messy legal battle and asked for their support, financial and otherwise. We're not sure what the women said in the moment, but they did make plans to head to Dirk's home in Wellesley, Massachusetts as soon as possible. Dirk also called his other children, Kirsten and Colin, who arrived later that evening. It's possible that once the family was together, Dirk sat his children down to discuss how they could protect his innocence. It's unknown exactly what they discussed, but apparently, when Britt, Kirsten and Colin all found themselves too stressed to sleep, Dirk gave them sleeping pills. Though he didn't take one himself. Instead, he sat awake in his study. When a sharp knock echoed through the house in the middle of the night, Dirk was still up and opened the door. Standing on the other side was his worst fear. A group of detectives and other investigators. Apparently, Detective Foley had secured a last-minute search warrant so officers could look through the house more thoroughly. Specifically, authorities hoped to find evidence as to whether Dirk had purchased the knife, hammer, and gloves found at the crime scene. But Foley knew that keeping Dr. Greinader in his good graces as his men tore through his house was a delicate balance. So he brought Dirk aside to talk in private. Foley told Dirk about the discoveries at Morse's Pond, and the doctor fought to maintain composure. Detective Foley could sense Dirk's fear. He lowered his voice to a whisper and said plainly, You could make it easier on your family if you tell me what happened today. Dirk's mouth hung open, and for one tense moment, he could have said anything. But then, Kirsten's angry voice rang down from the stairs. She shouted at the officers who swarmed her childhood home. Dirk turned away from Detective Foley, rounded up his adult kids, and brought them to a neighbor's house across the street. Foley stood defeated where Dirk left him, but the family's exit did allow the investigators to carry on with their search freely. By the end, they obtained a stack of credit card statements. About a day later, May's sister Ilse and niece Belinda arrived. The women had hardly put their bags down when Dirk began racing through his version of the story. But this time, he added to it, claiming that he and May both had nosebleeds on Halloween morning. He said he was worried that police might find some of his blood on her body. Belinda scrutinized Dirk. Her and Ilse's relationship with him had been strained for months. He discouraged May from visiting them in New York while her mother was dying and at the same time pressured her to get an advance on her inheritance. Belinda had always viewed May as more of a big sister than an aunt. Their closeness fueled her grief and suspicion. Much of these feelings stemmed from the fact that in Belinda's eyes, the once cheerful and independent May had become unhappy since marrying Dirk. And that only worsened when her children flew the coop. But to Belinda, 
The real tragedy was that May had lost her chance at returning to her old self. Ilse had helped pay for her tickets to visit them when Dirk wouldn't, and being around family lifted her spirits. But right when Belinda was starting to recognize May again, she was murdered. And Belinda had a gut feeling that May's controlling husband was behind it. As the days passed, Belinda remained skeptical, but May's autopsy only made authorities more certain of Dirk's guilt. As far as the medical examiner was concerned, May's injuries told a clear story. She had sustained 10 stab wounds around her head and a slashing wound that cut straight through her jugular vein deep enough to hit her spine. But the examiner also discovered that May first suffered an injury at the base of her skull. A blunt wound about an inch and a half in diameter indicated that someone had snuck up behind her. This discredited Dirk's claim that he'd left her lying down and unable to move. Dirk had no way of knowing what the medical examiner had found, but he must have ruminated over the possibilities because he arrived at the thought that the medical examiner would be biased against him. So he hired a pathologist to conduct a second private autopsy. An independent autopsy by a private pathologist isn't totally out of the ordinary, but these aren't usually done in addition to an official police autopsy. There's really not much of a need or reason to do so unless the victim's family or designated caretaker wants personal reassurance or they suspect an angle to the killing that the police may be missing. In Dirk's case, I suspect he wanted to know exactly what police had found or was hoping for a differing pathologist's conclusion, both of which could potentially buttress his own defense, confuse proceedings, and create more reasonable doubt in the eyes of the jury. It's certainly puzzling, though, and it definitely makes me wonder what he planned for those extra test results. Dirk's relatives, like Belinda, probably would have liked to know the same thing but they never found out. On November 6th, Dirk's pathologist obtained a handful of tissue samples from May's corpse, which was at the time under the care of the funeral parlor. From there, it's fair to assume Dirk didn't like the results of his own private autopsy because we don't know where these samples ended up or what the pathologist tested for. Over the next few days, the family prepared for a private funeral service. Belinda noticed how the Grinader children used themselves to form a sort of brick wall between authorities and their father. This only made Belinda trust Dirk less, and the feeling worsened on the day of the service. Before the ceremony, Dirk had promised that May's body wouldn't be present. After all, she had been gruesomely wounded. But when Belinda and Ilse walked in that day, they nearly fainted at the sight of May's body laid out in the open. Even the most skilled morticians in the world are bound by the laws of nature. There's only so much that can be done for victims from gruesome murders, and usually the best option is to try to cover any wounds with as much clothing as possible. Exposed injuries would be sealed or reconstructed with the use of a quick and solid drawing adhesive, and then these areas get touched up with cosmetics to minimize visibility. 
There are cases, though, when little can be done for the appearance of the deceased, like when they sustain major disfiguring head injuries. This may be the case, for instance, if they were shot in the head with a high-caliber firearm or a shotgun. To sum it up, injuries on the neck and below are usually manageable, but things can get very tricky above that region for obvious reasons. When Belinda composed herself, she noticed that the casket itself only added insult to injury. Dirk had purchased it, and it looked little more than a cardboard box. That was it for Belinda. She marched over to Dirk, but before she could say anything, Britt rushed to her father's defense and guided him away. From there, the funeral ceremony only lasted 15 minutes. Afterward, back at the Grinader house, Dirk approached Belinda as though nothing was wrong between them. He rambled about all the same things as before, how the police viewed him and his side of the story. But then... Dirk began to complain about the financial strain the funeral and the potential legal battle put on him. At some point, he asked Belinda to mortgage her apartment to help him. It hit Belinda. Dirk was trying to manipulate her. So, when Detective Foley called Belinda to ask if she'd be willing to cooperate in the investigation, her ears perked up. The officer explained that the Grinaders had been running a tight ship and that authorities couldn't break their wall of secrecy. He needn't say more. Belinda was more than willing to help. Coming up, Dirk's past catches up with him. Now, back to the story. Days after May Grinader's funeral service, law enforcement amped up their efforts to prove May's husband, Dr. Dirk Grinader, had murdered her. First, they called May's niece, Belinda, to help them close in on Dirk. Police needed more insight into Dirk's life in order to understand his possible motives. Belinda had her own suspicions and told officers as much. She laid out everything from when the couple's relationship began to deteriorate to Dirk's recent requests for financial aid. Then she agreed to keep them updated on anything new she learned while the investigation progressed. Dirk was unaware that Belinda was speaking to police behind his back, so as the days carried on, his paranoia diminished. Eventually, he decided to return to work. After all, he was staring into more financial hardship than ever. I don't know about you, Alistair, but I'd certainly prefer if my allergist wasn't a suspect in a murder case. However, despite this reasonable preference, there aren't any laws or regulations dictating that a doctor has to disclose information like this. As the saying goes, innocent until proven guilty. Furthermore, other than maybe being distracted and possibly needing to devote time to meeting with authorities, his status as a criminal suspect wouldn't necessarily impede his ability to practice. To play devil's advocate, Dirk may have seen his medical work at the time not only as a way out of financial trouble, but also as a welcome distraction, something that would get his mind off the boiling legal trouble he was sure to face. This mindset could have actually made Dirk all the more vigilant as an allergist, as he may have tried to push any non-medical work-related thoughts out of his mind. 
Thankfully, given Dirk's specialty, he wouldn't have been able to cause too much harm to anyone. Still, it's a frightening thought that he continued to see patients after allegedly killing his wife. As Dirk tried to regain normalcy in his career, the police attained another search warrant on his home. This time, they wanted to obtain anything that even looked like evidence. At 6 p.m. on November 12, 1999, they marched into the Grindeder home once again. Dirk followed the officers to his study and insisted that they couldn't search it because it contained confidential patient information. But one investigator simply told Dirk that he might want to take his kids and leave. Dirk reluctantly obeyed. On the way out, his daughter Kirsten once again yelled at the officers defending her father. During the course of the search, police made their way into the backyard. They peered inside a doghouse and spotted a pair of brown work gloves identical to those found at the scene. It appeared these were Dirk's gloves of choice. In Dirk's office, police found a planner that listed several hotel reservations for dates that matched Dirk's credit card history. Determined to uncover every detail of the doctor's personal life, officers even packed up his computer equipment. Finally, in the garage, police uncovered an open box of condoms, along with two vials of Viagra prescribed to Dr. Grinader by Dr. Grinader. They wondered what the man could have been up to and didn't have to wait long to find out. Back at the station, officers examined Dirk's hard drives. They first found a trove of pornography, then a library of erotic stories written by the doctor himself, all featuring a character named Tom. From there, officers discovered that Dirk had been a member of multiple dating sites. Once they realized the doctor was apparently willing to engage in actual relationships, a light bulb seemed to go off. Dirk's phone logs only added fuel to this line of investigation. After analyzing his outgoing calls, they discovered that he'd contacted an escort service on more than one occasion. Over the next several months, detectives pieced together Dirk's secret life. They tracked down some of the sex workers he'd hired, including Deborah. If you recall from last episode, Deborah was thought to be the second sex worker Dirk met with after the first one, Elizabeth, ghosted him. Deborah was willing to participate in the investigation so long as she wasn't prosecuted for her line of work. Detectives agreed. While the exact timeline is murky, police learned from Deborah that Dirk had likely called her the day before May's murder. Deborah said he sounded panicked on the phone, so while they did make plans to meet, Deborah suggested they do something relaxing, like take a walk. But call logs then suggest that Dirk called Deborah after the first search of his home and left a message explaining that they wouldn't be able to see each other for a while. But one of the most puzzling discoveries they made was the fraudulent credit card Dirk had opened under a fake business. There, the name Thomas Young surfaced again. The question of Tom Young's identity frustrated investigators. The name seemed too specific to just be made up, but too common to lead them anywhere. Another thorn in Detective Foley's side was the evidence found at Morse's pond. 
Since day one, he'd been trying to link Dirk to the bloody tools, but had no luck finding a store that sold the distinctive blue drilling hammer. Until one day, while investigating the gloves, Foley walked into a local hardware store and spotted the blue hammer. The store provided the authorities with their transaction history, which indicated that the specialty tool had last been purchased on September 3rd, but the buyer had paid cash. But as the forensic evidence began to pile in, it seemed more and more likely Dirk bought the hammer. Another team had been hard at work analyzing footprints from Morse's pond. It took time to match shoes up with the prints, but detectives were eventually successful in making positive identifications. While two out of eight distinctive prints belonged to dogs, five of the remaining six matched Dirk's bloodied sneakers. Then, Wellesley PD called in an expert in blood pattern recognition who had previously worked on the O.J. Simpson trial. He analyzed Dirk's blood-splattered clothing, and it didn't take long for him to form a conclusion. Dirk was there when May's blood was shed. Lastly, authorities ran a DNA test on the brown gloves found at Morse's Pond. It showed traces of Dirk's DNA among the glove's fibers. It would seem that police had everything they needed to put Dirk Grinader away for life. But the more they kept digging, the more they found. The Wellesley authorities were reluctant to move in, preferring to wait until they had as complete a picture as possible. But eventually, they ran out of time. For four months, detectives had tracked Dirk's every move. In February 2000, his niece Belinda let the police know that Dirk was planning a trip to Utah in March. And there was a chance he wouldn't come back. Unwilling to let Dirk slip out of their grasp, the detectives decided that they had just enough evidence to move in. On February 29th, Leap Day, plainclothes policemen surrounded Dirk's medical office with orders to arrest him if he tried to leave. As with any other crime, where an arrest occurs depends on where the suspect is when authorities get their warrant and are ready to close in. I've only heard of one instance where this happened to a doctor while at work, but without getting into detail, I imagine the timing of his arrest had to be coincidental. For most, it seems being arrested on the job rather than while at home or somewhere else would be incredibly humiliating and damaging to one's self-esteem and reputation, regardless of their culpability in the crime. I know it would certainly color and taint my perception of a doctor if I witnessed something like this, and I can only imagine what one of their patients would think. Ultimately, everyone's safety is a priority when apprehending a suspect in any situation. As such, authorities need to quickly assess if a doctor's removal from the premises would cause patient harm. If this were the case, special considerations would of course need to be made. Care and protection should always be paramount in these proceedings. Still, the Wellesley police were running short on time. So once the building was surrounded, a squad of detectives, including Foley, marched into the building, past the receptionist, and straight to Dirk's desk. They read the allergist his Miranda rights, 
then led him out of the building in handcuffs. He was charged with first-degree murder and held without bail. Even though the police had kept their investigation under wraps, news of the famed medical researcher's arrest made headlines. As Wellesley police officers led Dirk to their squad car, one thing seemed abundantly clear. No matter how the trial went, his reputation as a family-friendly allergist was tarnished. And, as if it couldn't get any worse for the disgraced doctor, his past came back to haunt him. The day after Dirk's arrest, Wellesley police received a phone call from one of his old Yale buddies, who claimed he and Dirk had a friend named Tom Young in college. Officers contacted Tom, now a Baltimore-based attorney, and explained the situation. They asked if he knew why Dirk had used his name in his stories and to take out a credit card. Tom was shocked. At some point, he gave an interview, during which he expressed disappointment toward his old roommate and said that Dirk had gambled with his reputation by using his name. But perhaps no one was as disgusted by Dirk's behavior as his niece Belinda, who made it clear that she would not contribute to his defense fund. This caused a rift in the family, as the Grinader children still believed their father was innocent. When the trial began in mid-May 2001, Dirk's defense used this to their advantage. Outside the courtroom, the Grinader children avoided the media as much as possible, but inside, they were seated in clear view of the jury. They cheered for their father when he pleaded not guilty and at other times were photographed in tears. The tension was palpable when Belinda testified against her uncle. She explained everything she'd seen from Dirk, not just in recent weeks, but in recent years. From there, the DNA evidence and receipts didn't look good for Dirk. In addition to laying out this evidence, the prosecution told the jury that they believed Dirk used the other killings in the area to cast suspicion away from himself. When Dirk's attorney made his case, he didn't necessarily disagree. The defense made it a priority to argue that the police assumed Dirk was guilty from day one without seriously looking into any other suspects. And finally, after six weeks, the jury was sent to deliberate. Four days later, on June 29th, 60-year-old Dr. Dirk Greinader was found guilty of first-degree murder. At this, Dirk's three children appeared to be in utter shock. Meanwhile, Belinda and Ilse held each other and wept tears of victory. Later that afternoon, Dirk was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, where he remains to this day. He maintains his innocence and has attempted multiple appeals, though none have made it very far. As for the serial killer theory, one of the other two Park murders was solved years later with DNA evidence, and the killer found guilty of another murder. The other remains unsolved. In hindsight, it's highly unlikely the three cases are connected. There's simply too much evidence that Dr. Greinader killed his wife. Not that he's a doctor anymore. His medical license was revoked in November of 2001, about two years 
after the murder. Dirk's act of violence leaves an indelible stain on the medical community. All of his research and other contributions will forever be stamped with his loaded name and legacy. This is a case that reminds us that no matter how educated, accomplished, or decorated someone may be, they're still subject and vulnerable to the same human follies and mental disturbances as the rest of us. This episode also validates how a career in medicine should always be pursued for the right reasons. Dirk was very money-driven, and it's a shame that the pressure to flaunt his success led him to amass such insurmountable stress. The bigger shame, though, is that he took this pressure out on May Griniter in the most tragic way possible. Since Dirk has never confessed, we'll never truly know what was going through his head as he perused his local hardware store and selected a large blue hammer. Instead, we're left with the assumption that the researcher and allergist crumbled under his own desires and saw no choice but to drastically change his circumstances. In that regard, he succeeded beyond his wildest dreams. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much, Alistair. For more information on Dirk Grinader, among the many sources we used, we found A Murder in Wellesley by Tom Farmer and Marty Foley extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Eric Stankey, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Maggie Admire, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Chelsea Wood, and produced by Joshua Kern. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Listeners, remember to visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale today, and I can't wait for you to dive in. Nexium, The Branch Davidians, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults takes you beyond the headlines for an intimate look at the sordid beginnings and deadly ends of the most radical groups in history. Details never heard on our show before. If you love our cult series or any of our true crime podcasts, this book is for you. Without your loyalty and support, none of this would be possible. So we truly hope you enjoy. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale and ready to read right now. Order today at parcast.com slash cults. <laughs>